right now, the most important task for us is to stabilize the patient. Uh, the economy is badly damaged. It is very sick. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And I'm Laura Conaway in New York City. This is a special edition of Planet Money for Tuesday, January 6th, 2009, because we're actually spending that day in a great, big, wonderful meeting. <laughs> very, very wonderful, I'm yeah, sure. Very wonderful. Um, they promised us pizza, but we don't want to leave you without a podcast. So let's go ahead and start today with this Planet Money indicator. This is a first for us from a listener. This indicator comes from Pam Olson of Centerville, Ohio. My planet money indicator is three for one. Three for one what, Pam? Um, three suits for the price of one. Where? In Centerville, Ohio, there's a Joseph Banks store. Um, and I recently received in the mail a card that says that for the price of one suit, they will give you two free. Do you think there's a big crowd running in there to get them? I doubt it. Uh, we actually have another store in the area that's going out of business, and their suits are marked down 70%. And given that, the fact that we are a GM community and there are a lot of factories closing down or closed down, uh, I don't think people are going to be buying suits anytime soon. Well, Pam Olson, thanks for that. We also heard from our own Mike Pesca. He covers sports usually for, for NPR. He sits in the next cube row over from mine, and sometimes he pedals over and blogs for us, npr.org slash money. And we love it when he does that. We do love that. That Mike Pesca, he is a guy who, if you've ever heard him, you will know he does his homework. And he spent part of the holidays reading this book, While America Aged, by Roger Lowenstein. And it has the most amazing subtitle here. I'll read it for you. How Pension Debts Ruined General Motors, Stopped the New York City Subways, Bankrupted San Diego, and Loom as the Next Financial Crisis. Breathe again, please. <laughs> Basically, the book says that each generation shoulders the burden of caring for the one before it. And when you start talking about Detroit and the auto industry, you're talking about a much smaller workforce today that's standing behind or under, really, the pension plan for retired workers. Mike Beska got so interested in Roger Lowenstein's idea that it is now our very first ever Planet Money book review. The first two chapters dedicated to the unraveling of General Motors and by extension the entire auto industry in the U.S. are the most timely, the most lively, and maybe the best shortcut to instant expertise around. Now, you could assiduously read every story in the Times and Journal about the auto bailout and the problem of the industry. You could kick yourself that you missed that interesting CNBC special. You could be vaguely suspicious when you hear a Michigan politician sing the praise of the car industry and be not quite sure why he's full of it. You could, but doing all that work is about as efficient as a Dodge Viper. This book, these first two chapters, in fact, are your Prius of car biz prowess. First, Lowenstein introduces us to one of the most important people in the history of labor, Walter Ruther, who as the head of the United Auto Workers was perhaps too skilled a negotiator. Lowenstein does occasionally take jabs at the auto unions and unions in general. He simply doesn't buy their loftiest rhetoric as union as vehicle of proletarian emancipation. But he ultimately finds the most fault with management, who made the same mistake with every contract presented to them. 
They traded generous future benefits for smaller short-term raises. Lowenstein must chronicle a half-dozen negotiations where the union came in offering, say, 5% raises and pensions of half your last year's salary. Management would always counter with, uh, how about... 2% raises and three-quarter pensions. It was a disastrous long-term proposition. Future costs weren't seen as actual costs by management, and the unions were happy to take a dollar less tomorrow for $100 in 20 years. As workers aged and as health care costs skyrocketed, retirees began to outnumber workers. But these were the contracts they negotiated. Lowenstein dredges up once-forgotten actuarial predictions that show that GM knew they were sitting on a time bomb, well, a time bomb other than the Corvair, and they didn't care. Every CEO traded short-term labor peace for potential future ruin. The funny thing about the future is that it's not always going to be in the future. The second part of the book is interesting, if only for biographical sketches of the men who built the New York City subway union, particularly a former IRA member named Mike Quill. Quill was a character. And even though he expired in 1966, three days after winning a 12-day subway strike, his imprint is still alive in the union and in the chapters on the most recent subway strike. They're talking about raising fares once more in New York City, and of course, pensions are a huge expense. By the time the final chapter of the book rolls around, the reader has almost lost the ability to muster outrage over San Diego's pension follies. The nagging question becomes, if I, as a reader, get it after about 150 pages, How do you explain the consistent befuddlement of the officials who are tasked with ensuring solvency? While America Aged by Roger Lowenstein, published by Penguin Press, is available for $25.95 retail, $17.13 from Amazon, $2 plus shipping used on barnesandnoble.com, and there are 41 reservable copies at the New York Public Library, 42 once I return mine. I thought the Planet Money crowd would be into that. Thanks, Mike Pesca. We'll link to Roger Lowenstein's While America Aged on our blog. Next up, a segment we've all come to know and love. It's time for another Economist House Call. Economist House Call is where we get regular folks on the phone with an economist, and the idea is to find a global context for their local situations. On today's installment, our house-calling economist Simon Johnson catches up with Renee Edlund. She's 26. She lives in Houston. And she's wondering about the future for her and her family. She and her partner both work in scientific research. Well, we're, you know, we're pretty young. We're kind of starting out. We were thinking in the next few years about buying a house. We're involved in scientific research, so we're not necessarily in the corporate sector. And I was kind of wondering um, whether maybe some of the economic problems that are happening right now could end up being good for us in the long run in terms of maybe, you know, housing prices decreasing or, um, you know, that sort of thing. And then also whether you think that there's going to be any sort of long-term effects in terms of how much money we have for research in the country. Okay, those those are both good uh, questions. And I think I have pretty positive answers on on both. First of all, we know that house prices are are coming down. I don't know exactly um, the dynamics in Houston, but oil prices are falling quite sharply, so that's Mm -hmm. probably going to make real estate uh, cheaper uh, where you are. And as long as you're buying the house and staying in it for a while, I I think uh, the prospects uh, there are pretty good. I also think on the the research side, uh, there'll be a lot of funding uh, for scientific research uh, obviously, the government is going to uh, expand various activities, mm-hmm. um, short-term and, I think, medium-term. And at least from what I, what I can see, um, uh, working at MIT, uh, there's a lot of uh, interest in developing further the, the university sector, which is obviously a big strength of, of the U.S. economy. Uh-huh. And, Simon, when I think about the U.S. role in the global economy, uh, there's a lot of anxiety. Will China overtake us with the 
you know, dollar weakness over the last few years, although not necessarily over the last few days, <laughs> that there's concern that that is the U.S. century, the American century over. And I, I always think not at all, because we really are the the research and innovation powerhouse of the world. Right. And, and, and that will only be more important as time goes on. For- I, I agree, Adam, completely. I think, and actually, when you have a situation like very much like today, when the dollar is appreciating, people um, so it's becoming harder to export. People, you know, will think, um, should think, well, we need to add more value in terms of uh, research and innovation, and that is absolutely the place where we we continue to lead the world. And as long as we continue to invest in the university sector, a little bit of a self-interested plug, I admit, <laughs> full disclosure, uh, the university sector. Right, um, your we're, future we're, is tied in with Renee's future. Yes, absolutely. But I think we're all in it together uh, in, in that regard. And Renee, what do you do basic research? Are you doing anything that you know could become a business in a couple of years? Uh, my research is more basic. I work on developmental neuroscience, um, and my specific work is actually in embryonic stem cells, but they come from mice. So, Simon, this there's an ec- economics issue which I've always puzzled about with basic research. I mean, but I think by definition, basic research is research that does not have a direct monetarily beneficial application, Mm -hmm. but it it forms the base on which most innovation will come sometime in the future, right? Renee, you don't know exactly how or when your research will be used, but you know that you are part of a process that will likely lead to dramatically advanced medical treatments and other things that have a true monetary value. Yeah. But I I can try to imagine ways that it will be important, but probably not in the next five years. Can you give us a sense? What what ways? Well, you know, uh, there are some people I work closely with who are working on making specific cell types by, you know, treating cells with certain chemicals. And um, I'm more interested in looking to see how we can make cells, how we can easily keep cells in the stem cell state until they're needed, because they, they... turn into other things really very easily, and it's not always easy to control exactly what they do. So, Simon, when I, I feel like I'm hearing a classic economics problem, uh, you know, sort of the tragedy of the commons, it's sometimes called. But uh, Renee is doing stuff that's really good for everyone in the world, but it's not good enough for any one person to actually pay for it. When we think of big pharmaceutical companies, say, or biotech companies, mm-hmm. uh, they don't want to pay you because they figure – why should I pay? Shouldn't all the whole society pay? Right. And 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 Simon, that's a that that's a core challenge of economics, right? It, it's a positive externality that 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 no individual has an incentive or no individual company has an incentive to pay, and so that's a central that many see that as the role of government, which I guess is what you were getting at earlier. Yes, absolutely, Adam. Uh, And that's something that the U.S. government has been rather good at uh, in the past, identifying the sort of basic research that can be and and should be supported. And there's some very good mechanisms for doing that in and around biological research. And, of course, you can always sell it to people as um, fighting against diseases and looking for the causes, breakthroughs against diseases. And Rene alluded to, you know, potential breakthroughs that may may happen. I would also stress that we're very good in this country at taking ideas out of the lab and turning them into businesses much faster uh, than, than you might think. 
Um, and what's very important is the universities and the government are good at uh, deciding how much property rights or how much shares they should get in any company you found. Typically, they want a piece of the action, but not too much. Mm -hmm. So the incentives are still very good for the scientists like uh, Rene and the entrepreneurs uh, who she would usually, a uh, person, person like Rene, Rene would usually get teamed up with. So you have some science, some entrepreneurs, you have some venture capital, and it's off to the races. Great. Rene, so in conclusion, you should be able to buy a house your job should be secured, and you should help the United States maintain its leadership role in the global economy. Well, that sounds really positive for us. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah, just don't look at your 401K for a few more months. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much, uh, Renee Edlund, a biology graduate student in Houston, Texas. Thank you. Good luck out there, Renee, and thank you, Simon Johnson, for the help. We'll be back Wednesday with a fresh edition of Planet Money. Remember, you can always keep up with us on our blog, npr.org slash money. If you're wondering about the music we play, we list it right up at the top. For now, I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. I'm sorry.